Welcome to the Co-Mission podcast. Today, we'll be hearing talks from Gabby Samuel on trusting in God's sovereignty and his goodness in difficult and uncertain times. This talk was recorded as part of the Co-Mission Women's Day 2021 and comprises two talks and a Q&A. Hey, um, good morning. It is such a joy to be with you, kind of, um, this morning. Um, hope you're comfy. This is really weird, but I hope you guys are comfy at home. Um, but let me pray before we begin. Lord, would you comfort your people with the truth of who you are as you've revealed it in your scriptures. Fix our hearts and our minds on you for your glory and our good. Amen. Um, you may well be sick to the back teeth of Bible teachers starting their talks with a summary of how awful the past year has been. Well, please do forgive me because I am going to join them because they weren't lying, were they? Um, 2020 is a year that most of us are very ready to forget. Of course, COVID, lockdown, isolation, mass, Brexit, Christmases cancelled, homeschooling, definitely praying for you guys. Um, situations all unimaginable in 2019. But COVID didn't come to us in a vacuum. Pre-COVID, we weren't off with flowers in our hair, just skipping around fields, doing nothing. No, COVID came at us whilst the demands of life were already in full flow. Whilst you were juggling work and parents and children and friendships and ASOS returns and saving and dating or its lack of. Whilst you were juggling health and exams and therapy and godliness and Bible reading and prayer and serving and planting. We were in the middle of book groups and meal prepping and pregnancies and washing clothes and washing plates and washing bedding and washing hair. We had new homes and new churches, um, new marriages and new babies and new businesses. We were already overwhelmed. And then 2020 came at us all real fast. And any slight grip you thought you had on life, any chance you had finally, you were finally gonna start adulting well, that went out of the window. Whilst ironically, you were locked in your house looking out of the window. But for some of us, those things were the least of our worries. For some of us, 2020 has been more than difficult. It's been breaking. It's been marked by death, COVID deaths and other deaths. Been marked by loss and deteriorating mental health and strained relationships and strained marriages and strained friendships, real financial difficulties. 2020 has been a whirlwind and a tidal wave and a thief I wonder in the midst of all of that, what has anchored your heart? That's a slight assumption there. Maybe your heart hasn't felt anchored at all. Maybe it was cut adrift many months ago. Maybe it has sunk beneath the waves of life. And as we look out onto 2021, maybe it drifts and it sinks further still. Well, today we'll spend some time thinking about some very simple Bible truths. That your God is sovereign, that your God is good and therefore you can trust him. God is sovereign and he's good and so you can trust him. I may tell you absolutely nothing new, nothing you don't already know, but I will tell you some things that are very true. Truths that you can indeed anchor your heart in. 
So come with me to the opening of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 1, verse 1, our main reading for today, just read for us a moment ago, excellently. Um, And it goes like this, it reads like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These are three phrases that would have meant everything to a Jewish audience, like the one Matthew was writing to. This would have just set sirens off in their minds. Matthew has opened his gospel with absolutely no ambiguity and is putting who and what he is here to speak about front and centre. Matthew introduces Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Messiah meaning he's the one that you, your nation, your whole history in fact, has been waiting for. The promised one who would come to save you and your people. He's the son of David. The son you would promised would come from the line of David as God's king to reign over you with a kingdom that would last forever, literally forever. He's the son of Abraham, the original OG, father of your faith, who would, um, and the, so the coming of the Messiah meant every single promise that God had made to Abraham was about to be fulfilled. There's not three bigger phrases Matthew could have drawn for in introducing Jesus. But Matthew doesn't just want to tell you who Jesus is. He wants to show you. He's got evidence. He's come with the receipts. He's come with a genealogy. So what he'll do for the next 14 verses is walk you through an abridged version of Jesus's family tree. So verse one, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, blah, 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 something, something about David, blah, 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 we're in the exile, that sounds important, blah, 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 Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the Christ, right? That's usually what happens when we read a passage like this. You know the situation, it's a new year, you've started a new Bible reading plan, and this is your New Testament reading, and we are skimming. We're definitely skimming these verses. Bible overviews mean that we'll know something about David and Abraham and maybe Solomon, but Ram, Salmon, Akim, those verses, those names mean very little to us. They're not even the cute Old Testament names you can have in your back pocket for your imaginary future children. We skip these names, but Matthew doesn't. We skip their stories, but God has given their stories to us. Because what we're reading here is no sterile addendum for the super keen amongst us to pay attention to. It's not the foreword before the real story starts in verse 18. No, what we're reading in these verses is the story of the sovereign God of the universe orchestrating human history, orchestrating people and time and place to bring about the birth of the Messiah, the one who would redeem his people, a people which you yourself are included in if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning. This is no sterile, dusty index page of Matthew's gospel. This is the summary of the 39 God-breathed books of the Old Testament volumes telling us of a God who is sovereign and has his hand working in the lives of his people for their good. But what's crazy here is that God is not executing this most cosmic story ever told, um, the birth of the Messiah. Um, he, God doesn't work this plan out separate from his people, distance from his people. No, he's working this plan out in the lives of his people. 
through his people. He's not working his sovereignty out and his sovereign plan out at them or on them. He's working it out in them and through them. He's working in the lives of kings and the powerful and the wealthy. He's working his plan out in the lives of foreigners, of the widowed, of the outcast, of the most vulnerable. And this genealogy tells us of the sovereign hand of God working out this marvellous plan to bring about the Messiah in the lives of women, five women to be exact, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, and Mary. Some of us will know um, stories of these women well. We stand back and we have the full picture in view. The whole plan of God rolled out and we see where their individual stories were leading. We see that their stories end well, that their stories are being tied into the greatest story ever told. Verse 17, Jesus, who is called the Christ. But it's probably not how their stories felt to them as they were living through it. A quick glance at the lives of some of these women will tell you that the sovereign hand of God was no promise of a life free from concerns or the fallenness of this world. Consider Tamar. We meet her in verse 3 and it reads like this, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We find her story in, verse, in Genesis 38. She was married to what the Bible would call a wicked man, a man who is actually the son of Judah. Judah is Tamar's father-in-law. What happens is Judah refuses to do his right, his duty by Tamar as a widowed woman once she, his son dies. And so she hatches a plan to secure herself and her lineage. And that plan is to get pregnant by Judah. Can you hear how wild that situation is? The story itself, if you read it, is a bit more X-rated. Would Tamar have been able to trace the sovereign hand of God in her life? No. But was God sovereignly in control? Yes. Was he working out his plans? Yes. Rahab, in verse 5, who was the mother of Boaz, was a prostitute hiding men from an enemy people in her home. Ruth, in verse 5 again, was married for 10 years with no child, then widowed, but devotes herself to her, to her dead husband's mother, also a widowed and childless woman. Ruth then goes with her mother-in-law to live amongst her mother-in-law's people, a people known to hate her people. Would Rahab or Ruth been able to trace the sovereign hand of God working in their lives? No, not at all. But was God sovereignly in control? Yes. Was he working out his plans? Yes. We read on in the genealogy and we get a mention of a woman known here as Uriah's wife. And here I do just want to slow down a bit and tell the story of Uriah's wife. The situation is this. David is the king, the greatest king Israel has ever known. His men are at war, but rather than be at war alongside his men fighting, he's at home in the palace. And there he sees a woman bathing on her roof, which was normal at the time. He sees her, he likes her. He learns her name, she's called Bathsheba, but he also learns that she's married. She's married to a man that is in David's army. He's currently at war, he's called Uriah. That should have been the end of that. She's off limits, right? But we're told that David summons her. And when the king summons you, it's probably more of a command than a request. Bathsheba goes to him and David has sex with her. Take a moment to imagine what Bathsheba might have been thinking as she leaves the king's palace 
and makes her way home. Would Uriah find out? What would he think? What would he do? Her own responsibility in this situation, did she say no? Did she actually quite like David? He's a king. Maybe she wanted it to happen. But if she didn't want it to happen and she did say no and it happened any anyway, then what then? But imagine a few weeks later when Bathsheba's period doesn't come. Her heart's racing as she puts the dates together. She's pregnant and it's certainly not her husband's child. The news of her pregnancy gets to David and he goes into cover-up mode. He has to make this baby look like it's Uriah's baby. He's God's king. He can't be found out as an adulterer. So David calls Uriah back from war, you know, gives him the weekend off, assuming that a man back from war is going to go and see his wife. But Uriah is so mindful of his fellow Israelite brothers fighting for their lives, fighting for Israel, he doesn't go home to his wife. David's plan's not working, so the next night he gets Uriah drunk, thinking, yeah, he's definitely going to go home to his wife now. But Uriah does not go home and he does not go to Bathsheba. There's no way they've had sex and there's no way the child is his. It's all going to come out. And so David takes matters into his own hands and he writes a note. He gives that note to Uriah and instructs Uriah to give it to a man called Joab, the guy who's in charge of the army. And that note says this, put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and then order your men to draw back, leaving Uriah there to die. Uriah faithfully carries that note to Joab, not knowing he's just handed over his own death warrant. The plan is executed by Joab and Uriah dies. Now pan your mind back to Israel, back to Bathsheba's house. Imagine the moment she hears the news that Uriah, her husband, is dead. We don't know if she knew about the plan. Did she know David had something to do with it? What must she have been thinking about her life at that moment, about God? about Uriah, about David, about her child. We're told that after Uriah dies, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife. What would she have been thinking on her wedding day? Maybe this is the come up she'd always dreamed of, the social mobility of a lifetime. She's now married to the king and living in the palace. Or did she remember Uriah? Did she mourn for him? Did her stomach churn as she walked down the proverbial aisle and made vows to a man that she probably knows has something to do with the murder of her husband. The story doesn't end there though. She gives birth. Maybe now calm, maybe now she can breathe. Maybe now things will settle down and she can make the most of this situation she's found herself in. But her child dies. The very reason David hatched this plan, the very reason that Uriah is murdered, to cover up this pregnancy falls in adultery with a king. Her whole life has been turned upside down for this child. And now that child dies. What must Bathsheba have thought about God in that moment? I wonder if she asked him, where are you and what are you, what are you doing? Would she have been overwhelmed and exhausted and confused? Why God? She, had she been taught about God's sovereignty? And what did she make of it on the day that she laid her child to rest? For her, in this moment, her life is not an interesting part of a Bible overview. This is her real life. And it's a whirlwind and a tidal wave and a thief. What plan could God possibly have been working out in this mess? The next child Bathsheba bore for David was Solomon who, against all reason, 
and expectation becomes the next king of Israel. She is not just um, the mother of a king, she becomes the foremother of the Christ. Would Bathsheba have been able to trace the sovereign hand of God in her life? No, not at all. But was God sovereignly in control? Yes. Was he working out his plans? Yes. God was elbow deep in her life, bringing about good, a good that she would have never imagined, a good that would have blown her mind, goodness itself incarnate. Like I said, she's not just a mother of a king, she becomes a foremother of the Messiah, the Christ. When you consider the details of the lives of these women, there is no doubt that the concerns and worries and questions that fill our hearts and minds, especially this year, would not have been alien on their lips. Did Ruth or Bathsheba or Mary worry about their future, ask questions of God, struggle with their mental health, financial insecurity, concerns for their children, their parents, have difficulties in their marriage? But was, were they able to trace the sovereign hand of God in their lives? No, probably not. But was God sovereignly in control? Yes. Was he working out his plan? Yes. And so the question for us this morning is, has God changed? Has he changed? Matthew 1 to 17 tells us of a God who is at work in death and adultery and exile and conquest and marriage and famine, in uncertainty and loss, in the mundane and in the miraculous. He's at work in love and marriage and moving homes and having babies. He's sovereignly at work in these women's lives as they seek to provide for and protect themselves and their families. He has been sovereignly at work in the lives of his people in every situation. And so the question is, has he changed? Will he now not be sovereign over his people in this moment? This moment of COVID, this moment of uncertainty, this moment of distance and difficulty. Is he any less sovereign in 2020 AD than he was in 2020 BC? God's word is here for us as a testament to centuries of his faithful sovereignty working for the good of his people. And that is supposed to give us confidence. We're supposed to see what God is like and in the knowledge that he does not change, then we can trust that as sovereign as he was then is as sovereign as he will be now. Will we always be able to trace his sovereign hand in our lives? No. But is he sovereignly in control? Yes. Is he working out his plans? Yes. God is sovereign. But as we close, there remains a question. There's a tension here. We know these truths about God's sovereignty, but we also know that they often don't comfort or anchor our hearts as they ought to. They don't give us the peace that we know they should give us. Why is that? Why is there often so, lif so little comfort in the knowledge that God is sovereign? Well, we'll pick up this talk and discuss some of these things in our next half. But for now, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth that you are sovereign. Remind us of that, Lord. Convict us of that and help us to think about what that means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the first half, we contemplated the sovereignty of God in Matthew 1 and the sovereignty of God, therefore, in our lives today. Um, but we're aware that this thought doesn't give us the comfort that it, it's supposed to. 
we know this big Bible truth in theory is able to anchor our hearts, but we also know that we rarely experience that anchoring. In the middle of an overwhelming day or week or year, our hearts and our minds go to so many places before they attempt to anchor themselves in the truth of who God is, that God is sovereign. Why? Why is it easier to jump on socials or to think about what you're going to have for dinner or call a friend or try and pep, pep talk yourself? Why is that so much easier to do than to anchor our hearts in the fact that God is sovereign? Well, I think that the sovereignty of God doesn't lift or anchor our hearts as it ought to because we're not entirely convinced that the one who is all sovereign is also the one who is all good. We're not always convinced that God is actually good. God is good. We're not convinced, but the Bible couldn't be more sure. It's amongst the chief things that the psalmist praise God for. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 106 verse 1. You are good and you do good. Psalm 19, 68. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. Psalm 31. Throughout the entire storyline of the Bible, God is shown to be doing and working good for his people with his sovereign hand. As he rescues from slavery, as he gives them his law, as he teaches and shepherds and protects and disciplines and forgives them. As he promises Eve, the child who would crush the head of the serpent. And then here in Matthew 1.17 tells us of the child of Mary, who is the Christ. God is constantly doing good to his people. The marriage between God's goodness and God's sovereignty is a blessing for the believer. The most well-known summation of this might be in Romans 8. And you know it, it reads like this. And we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who, who have been called according to his purpose. Universally, when the Bible speaks about the sovereign hand of God in salvation or in judgment, it's spoken at it's spoken about as a good thing for the people of God. And this is grounded in the simple fact that God himself is good. God is good. If you did a first point, a little bit of structure for us today, that would be it. God is good. And it's simple, absolutely elementary. If you teach Sunday school, you've definitely taught kids this. God is good. I know that you know this, but think about it. God in and of himself is the fullness of the very essence of all that is good. If this were a different kind of church context and you were actually here in the room, I'd tell you that God is good all of the time. And some of you would know to say, and all of the time, God is good. It trips off our tongues. God is good all the time and all the time, God is good. But pause, just linger in that confession. God is good all of the time and all of the time from eternity past to eternity future, including in this moment, God is good. If you know me reasonably well, you will know that I love a good burger. Um, and a few years ago, a few friends and I decided that we would find the best burger in London. We were going to go on a tour 
and we were going to rate them ambiance, burger, all the things that are important. Um, and you'll be happy to know that I do have a top five. You can ask me later. But whenever anybody asks me to share this information, to tell them what my number one burger in London is, I get a little bit nervous because I'm thinking that they're going to go based on my recommendation and knowing my look, that is the one day that that burger is going to be trash. It's going to be awful. And then my reputation as a burger connoisseur is going to be damaged. But I know that it's a possibility because I know that it's a possibility that the burger might not be good all of the time. And you've been there. You know that disappointment of something you remember being fantastic the first time and the second time or the fourth time. It just doesn't hit the spot the same. The best things in this life are not good all of the time. No relationship is good all of the time. The deepest friendship, the most intimate marriage, work, food, health, motives, you. Nothing is good all of the time. Everything and everybody at one point or another is not good, apart from God. God stands unaffected by the fallenness of this creation, entirely different to us. And so it can be said of him and him alone that he is good all of the time and all of the time he is good. God is good. But okay, we get that. We hear you, Gabs. We hear the Bible, God is good. But can we push this a little bit further? I started off by saying that the sovereignty of God doesn't lift or anchor our hearts as it ought to because we're not entirely convinced that the one who is all sovereign is also the one who is all good. But let me add this. If convinced that God is good, we're not entirely convinced that he is being good to us. We know that God is good, but will he be good to me? We read in the scriptures of his compassion and his mercy and his faithfulness and his covenant keeping love for his people, his goodness. But when it comes to us, well, maybe his fingers are crossed behind his back. Here's the second point. God is good to me. God is good to you. Let me be painfully clear here. If today you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are walking in repentance and faith, God has promised to do good to you. If you would pause to consider your life, you would see daily evidence of God's goodness to you. That breath you just took and that one that you're taking now, that's God's goodness to you. The room that you're sat in, the chair or the bed that you're sat on, the food you ate from a plate this morning was actually from his hand. These things aren't owed to us or deserved by us. They are God's goodness to us. But for the Christian, these things are barely touching the surface of God's goodness to us. We, we just read in Matthew 1 earlier of the God who would bend human history orchestrate lives and deaths and people and time and place so that just at the right time, he might bring about the birth of his own son. The one who is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And not just sovereignly orchestrate his birth, sovereignly orchestrate his death. So that thousands of years later, 
Someone might bring the gospel to your ears so that he might open your heart, so that you might believe in that Christ, believe in him and have eternal life. Will we now, after seeing that, after seeing Christ, the Son of God, hung upon a cross for our sin, in our place, would we now question his goodness to us? His sovereign hand has been at work in history to save us and to bless us. Will it now turn to curse us? When you were his enemy, he adopted you. So now his adopted child, will he treat you as his enemy? The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate demonstration of God's goodness to his people. And he knows his people by name. God has been good to you. God is good all of the time. And all of the time, God is good. He is doing good to you and in you and working good on your behalf, regardless of what your 2020 has looked like or what your 2021 might look like. Does it always look like it? No. Does it always feel like it? Certainly not. But is it true? It's true. You can't always see it and you don't always feel it. But I'm sure Bathsheba couldn't always see it or feel it. I'm sure Ruth nor Mary could always see it or feel it. But we stand here on the other side of the cross and we see their histories written for us and we see the sovereign hand of God working goodness for his people. And he does not change. For some of us, I know there's a bit of hesitation. I can feel it, don't worry. There's a bit of hesitation in this. We're mindful that thinking about and talking about God in these ways can become a prosperity gospel. And there is wisdom in that hesitation. But we can be so concerned not to fall into the prosperity gospel, not to present God as a genie, that if we're not careful, we start to believe and present God as a Grinch as though he's mean, <laughs> that he, as though his hand of blessing is tightly clenched. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 7, Matthew will tell us of a sermon that Jesus himself preaches, and he asks those that are listening to him, which of you, if your son asks for bread, would you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would you give him a snake? If you, who are evil, read between the lines, because I'm not evil, I'm good, I'm God. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We can ask in confidence, knowing that if it is for our good, God will give it to us. And there is nothing that is for your good that he is withholding. He is no genie. We can't command him. He's not obliged to give anything to us. He's no genie but he is no Grinch. God is good and is doing good to us in this moment. Of course, his goodness to us goes far beyond his provision for us. He's working in us the goodness of godliness, of a life trained in love and generosity and joy and self-control. We have the eternal goodness, the promise of eternal life the goodness of peace with the creator of the heavens and the earth, the goodness of being able to call God your father. He's sovereign and at work in your life, doing good to us, to his people.
His sovereign hand at work in our lives is only a comfort to the degree that you and I believe that he's good. If we were to meditate on and believe in the goodness of God, then we were to remember that he's also sovereign. That's when his sovereignty would stop being this cold, harsh thing to us, this heavy thing to us, and would become something full of joy, of hope, of confidence, of comfort for the believer. God is good and he is sovereign. So what would that mean for the you in the rest of 2021? Well, here are some questions for you. You may have seen them coming. Is God sovereign? Is God good? And if you can answer those two questions, yes, then will you not trust him? That's the implication, isn't it? If he's sovereign, if he's in control, and if all of the time that he's in control, he's also good, then you can trust him. Application isn't always what you will do differently. It starts with how you will think differently, what you will believe more deeply, what truths you will train your heart and your mind to cling to. So what if in the situations that await you in 2021, you were confident of these two things? In every situation you found yourself in, you remembered that in that situation, in that moment, God is both sovereign and good. Generally speaking, I would say that I have pretty okay mental health. I've been called robust on many an occasion. Um, but 2020, I'm guessing that all of us, even the most robust of us, will have known something of anxiety, even more so for those of us with underlying mental health concerns. Your thoughts go over and over in your mind. They get darker and darker. You're overwhelmed and immobilized at the same time. And the wave of life is about to sweep your legs out from under you. In that moment, grab onto these truths. Ask yourself, say it out loud if it's helpful. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is God good? Yes. Okay, then I can trust him in this moment. I can trust him in this situation. I can trust him with this child. I can trust him with this decision. I can trust him with this day, with this meeting, with this phone call. Do whatever you need to do. Put it on your mirror, put it on your phone screensaver, put it on your kitchen cupboard. Remind yourself of who God has told you that he is. He's sovereign and he's good. Or maybe this. Think about the difference that believing that God is both sovereign and good would make to your prayer life. How would you pray differently? What would you pray about? Would prayer be this burdensome, rigid obligation or a privilege that you're going to take full advantage of because you get to speak to the only one in the universe who has the power to change everything and whose ear you have. A life conscious of the sovereignty of God would have to be a life full of thankfulness. So often we take things for granted, but the reality is everything you or I have ever enjoyed, the most miraculous and the most mundane, all of it was from God. This year, might we become practiced in counting our blessings, not to boast or compare, but to see and take note of God's sovereign goodness all around us. If we were fully convinced of the sovereignty and goodness of God, what would our obedience look like? Sometimes obedience is hard because we know that there'll be consequences. 
Things you might lose out on, rights you might have to give up, truths you might have to tell. Obedience often requires us to sacrifice of ourselves and we feel vulnerable in that. But if we were mindful that we make those sacrifices before the throne of a God who is all sovereign over every outcome of your obedience and all good, what would that look like? Trust him enough to obey him. As we look back on 2020, it does indeed look like a bit of a mess. Um, it's been a hard year. I feel that with all the weight of it, that's true. It has been a hard year for lots of us. But because of the revelation God has given us of himself in the Bible, we can know that he was both sovereign and good, even in the chaos. I don't know what 2021 will hold for us. You don't know, no one knows. Um, it is uncertain, but some things are certain, that God is sovereign, that God is good. So therefore, we can trust him. Let me pray for us as I close. Father in heaven, God of all creation, what a joy that because of your son, Jesus Christ, we get to come to you in prayer, knowing who you are, that you are the God who is sovereign, you are also the God who is all good. You've demonstrated that to us in your son and you demonstrate it to us daily as you care for us in ways that we so often don't even notice. Father, we pray that knowing that about you, knowing that you're sovereign, knowing that you're good, that would give us the courage to trust you. Trust you with our lives, trust you with our futures, trust you in the uncertainty, trust you in the pain, trust you in the difficulty, trust you in the loss. Father, we rejoice in the fact that you are trustworthy, that it's not a jump into the dark, it's not a blind, silly hope, it's a proven fact. Your scriptures testify to it. And we rejoice knowing that you hear our prayer. And we do pray these things for the glory of Jesus Christ and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, and welcome back. We're going to have a Q&A now, um, which is really great because you guys have sent in some amazing questions and we've had a lot of fun looking through them. And we're like, yeah, that's a great point. Wow. You guys, you've been really concentrating. So we're really glad about that. So let me uh, get straight on with, we've got a juicy one here. Um, here you go, Gabby, see what you make of this. It, I'll shorten it slightly, but it says, thank you for showing us how God used these complicated situations in his plans. So we're thinking about the good and sovereign uh, side of this coins. Thinking about the good side of this coin, um, how do we think about God's goodness when he used some really awful things to achieve his plans? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's no doubt if you read the Bible for any extended amount of time, the Bible documents some yeah, genuinely horrific moments, both in the life of Israel and in the life of the enemies of Israel. Um, the Bible doesn't shy away from the awful awful things that happen in life but I think the question is great because um yeah praise God that he's able to work in the awful situations in life mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the other option would be if he were to only work in the situations that were good that's a that's a very limited number of situations to work in <laughs> that's a and good point <laughs> for most I think obviously like we're young in London you know we live in the west living in you know in the wealthier part of the world um Yet for most people across the world and in human history, their lives haven't been easy. Yep. Their lives haven't been marked by um, 
yeah, by by the things that we would know to call that we would call good. Yep. But what joy for us to know that even in um, those situations, God is able to achieve His purposes in the most dark um, and most horrific of situations. That is not a situation at which God is no longer able to act. Yep. He's like, this is a mess. I got to step back, guys, because I can't do anything with this. Even in those situations, God is able to work to bring about good. That's really helpful. I mean, and there's countless Bible examples, actually, of God using really sinful people to, um, to achieve his purposes. So even, I guess you think of the Apostle Paul, who God, um, who he talks about himself as the chief of sinners, and yet he is the person that God chose to, uh, to use to bring the gospel to so many people. So you think, actually, it's really exciting to think that God can use anyone and everyone, really. Yeah. It is, it's exciting. I think, um, I could talk about this all day. I think, cause, because I do love narrative, I love Old Testament narrative. I know lots of people struggle, struggle with it, but I think that there's, there's so many stories you read and God takes, yeah, the, the, the other passage that would have been tempting to do for a talk like this is the story of Joseph. We know yeah. it's such a Sunday school story, but um, yeah, but God takes a horrific situation. The last time I taught that the whole story to, to young people specifically was when there was kind of the breaking news about the slave trade in, in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, and to say that like, yeah, his, his brother sold him into slavery. <laughs> um, even in that, God, God had mapped out how he was gonna use that to bring about the, the, the saving of Israel. Yep. Um, yeah, praise God that he works in the most horrific of circumstances. He's able to bring good, yeah, from the worst moments. Okay, so I'm going to flip this around because now we've got another question, which is about how about when both, uh, like in an example of a Christian relationship where both parties are trying to live godly lives, so trying to do the right thing, trying to be in a good situation and honour God and honour one another, but then there's pain and hurt. How do we trust in God's goodness then? when it seems like we're doing, trying to do all the right things and yet still it's not working. Yeah, um, that's, that's the reality of life, isn't it? Um, yeah, I suppose um, godliness is no promise of, of freedom from the fallenness of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Christ is very godly. It's true. <laughs> He's perfect. Um, and, and he experiences the fallenness of this world in ways, yeah, in the cross, but in lots of ways. Um, and so, yeah, two people in a situation trying to be godly, um, but it not working, um, yeah, is, is a moment where we do experience something of the fallenness of the world. Relationships are difficult, even when we're both trying our best. Yeah. Um, relationships don't, yeah, require work and perseverance, um, even when we're both trying our best. I think very practically, um, yeah, that's something to take to the Lord in prayer, but very practically, yeah, um, I'm, I think I'm learning that um, I need to search, I don't know how to phrase this in a way that doesn't sound awful, but um, I'm, I'm keen to be godly in the way that makes most sense to me, but godliness often for me anyway requires a giving up of my rights. Mm-hmm. And so in a situation where we're both trying to be godly, I need to think about, okay, what does it look like to love this person well? And so maybe I need to be mindful of godliness in this area, not just in this area. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's complicated, but I think, um, but yeah, godliness doesn't mean a, a freedom from the fallenness of the world. And, and maybe we need to, yeah, to think about what does a godly love for this person look like specifically in this situation? Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think um, that leads on to this next question. Is it okay to say that God is good 
but my situation isn't good? Yes, I think so. I think that's a great question. Um, God is good, and sometimes our situations are not good. Yeah. Um, yes, and, and I think, yeah, it's so funny. Like, our theology comes into play. We know that that's true, because the world is fallen, because yep. I'm fallen. Um, yeah, my emotions and my desires and my motives are fallen. Praise God they're being renewed um, and being conformed to the image of Christ. But, but that doesn't mean that the situations that we're in are not difficult sometimes. Death is still a bad thing. Um, the, that, the difficulty of relationships is still a bad thing. Yep. Um, yeah, the struggle that we see all around the world, they're still bad things. The, the point of God being good isn't that now we just pretend that the situation is good, but that we're confident that in the situation, God is still being good. Um, the, situa- the situation itself is often not good, and it's right for Christians to say, this is not good. This is not what God um, would, would have for his people. This is not, this is not good. This is the fallenness of the world. We know that Jesus wept. Yeah, um, yeah I was but, thinking of that, yeah, actually, yeah. that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. So you know that actually even the perfectly good one still could say, this is not... This is not good. This is not the way that, you know, <laughs> the best way. Be. It's not um, the way that it was supposed to be. And yes. I don't think that the, an acknowledgement that God is good calls us to lie and pretend. Yeah. Christians, are not called to pretend. Oh, God is good and everything is fine. That's not true. God is good and this situation is hard. The truth that God is good gives us confidence that in the situation being hard, um, that God is, God is able to be good to us in that situation and yeah. is doing good to us in that situation, not least in the cross, but even in that present moment. That's really helpful. And I love, uh, we've got another question here. <laughs> Essentially, the very last bit of the question says, will God change his mind because of my prayer? And I'm going to leave it at that because I think, actually, isn't that just such a, <laughs> That's great, a great question? question. <laughs> will God change his mind because of my prayer? Because, um, you know, however hard a situation is, actually one of the, the responses that we should have is prayer. Now, do we look at that situation and think, well, God is good, so therefore I won't pray, or God is sovereign, so therefore I won't pray because my prayer is very ineffective and won't change anything? What do it's you actually think? a great question. And I think every Christian asks, like, if God is sovereign <laughs> yeah. and he's eternal, so he's already knows the future, why would I pray? He's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, I think we all ask those questions. And your mind does have to, like, really, like, work hard to kind of process it. But I think the answer is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And God has given means by which he will achieve his will. Um, it's like saying God is, God is sovereign, so why evangelise? He knows who's going to save. It's true, God is sovereign. He does know who's going to save. Yep. But he's given a means to achieve that, and the means is people telling the gospel. Yep. In the same way that God is sovereign in this situation, and he knows what he's going to do, but he's given a means by which that happens. And that means is often prayer. And we see it in the scriptures. Peter will be in prison, the church will pray, and God, <laughs> God releases Peter. Yep. Um, was God always going to release Peter? Yeah, he's sovereign, and he knows the beginning from the end. Probably yes. Definitely, yes. But, um, but the means of that was prayer. Um, and sometimes it's helpful to think of the inverse. If God is sovereign, why would you bother praying? You can't do anything. It didn't make it into the talk, but it's quite a common like, phrase. Yep. If, God is, um, good, but so- if God is good, but not sovereign, he's just a nice granddad yep, that's going to give you a hug and say, sorry about that, mate. <laughs> that sounds tough. Good luck. <laughs> if God is sovereign, but not good, um, yeah, he can do things, but that's a tyrant. That's an absolute tyrant. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in the God of the Bible, we have a God who is both sovereign and good. And because he's sovereign, that's why you would pray to him. If he's not sovereign, why would you pray? 
thank God that he's sovereign because that means that your, your prayers are the means by which he is achieving his, his plans in the world. Um, yeah. Because he's sovereign, we pray to him and no one else. <laughs> that, that's a great encouragement to pray, actually, isn't it? To think that actually we have a direct line to the one who can change everything in the universe. So Crazy. why would we not pick up yeah. that direct line? I think you're right that it is an encouragement and he may well be using us in these situations that he's brought us into to bring about a good far greater than we can imagine. I think also when you're struggling with a tough situation, um, it's also quite helpful to think actually, you know, what is God achieving through this? Because sometimes what I think is good and what I think God should be doing in me is something entirely different to what he thinks is good and he should be doing in me. I was really struggling in lockdown one. And then I read 2 Peter chapter one, where God says that he's growing in his perseverance. And then I was really struggling even more because I'm like, hang on God, you mean you're actually using this for what you would call good, which is me becoming more patient and perseverance, <laughs> persevering, because I do not feel like that's good, but actually what God knows is best for us. And what I would think is best for me, I suppose are two very different things. I suppose the idea of a parent-child relationship is quite helpful. And we do have a question um, about that, which is um, a parent might give good things to their child, but also do evil to them. Just because God does good things and gives good things, does that really, is that enough to tell us that he is totally good? Um, I don't think the fact that he gives good things is the thing that makes us confident that he's good. Um, Tell me more. <laughs> I think God... Why can I be confident? <laughs> because, and this is where, like, yeah, the gift of faith is a real thing. Because God has testified of himself that he is good. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a thing that, like, when I was growing up in church, you'd hear, like, old grandma saying in church, like, if God didn't do anything else good for me, if God didn't do anything else for me, he would have done enough. Um, like, yeah, his goodness, it, me, me acknowledging that he's good is not contingent on what he does or doesn't do next in my life. God is, God's goodness is, is a fact about him. Mm -hmm. It's in him. It's of him. It's actually, it's the definition of anything else you've ever known to be good. Um, regardless of what, um, yeah, I think is or isn't good that's happening in my life. And now this is interesting. Um, yeah. I think even in the most dire of situations... For the believer, on the other side of eternity, we'll be able to look back and see the good that God is working, um, even in the most dire of situations. Yeah. But for the believer, the place that they look to to see that God is good is not their situation. Um, you can pick any, any, <laughs> any Old Testament person, and there were situations in which, if they were to look at their situation, God is not being good. For the believer, we have the privilege on this side of cross of being able to look back to the cross. That's why I know that God is good. Yep. Um, it's not my situation. It's as I look back to the cross and I see his son hung up for me in my place. And in that life and death and praise God, his resurrection, there's a promise of an eternal life. Yeah. Free from the circumstances which you might look at now and say that are not good. Yeah. Um, God is working good in the, in the most difficult of situations. We can't trace his hand often, but what we can do is look to the most certain place of his goodness, and that is the cross. Um, yeah. I think that's where we look. That's really helpful. I mean, I was just talking um, in a one-to-one -one yesterday with a, an artist who's lost everything, really, and it was so hard talking to her. And the, the verse that God had led us to look at, we were just going through Colossians, and the very next section 
Whereas in Colossians 3, where it says, um, set your mind on uh, things above, not on earthly things. And I think it, that is really helpful when you think about when the earthly things are really tough and really dire. And it really is dire if you're an artist right now. But actually God's command to us is to set our things on, uh, set our hearts on things above, to lift our eyes and to see the eternal heavenly realities. That is what he commands us to do because that is, I love that word used, anchoring. That is to anchor my thoughts in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. When I see him there and when I look back in history to the cross, that anchors my thoughts in, in, in who he really is and what he's really doing. And you're right, we will look back and see why my friend has lost all her industry right now. But right now, all I can see is just chaos and mess and yeah. it's really tough. And that's quite a bizarre thing to imagine. <laughs> to imagine that someone is saying in the situation that you're in that now on eternity you'll see God's hand in it but I think that's why that's part of the reason we have the scriptures um yeah because we see situations that are in the moment they look a mess yeah <laughs> they look a mess people lose everything yeah um and lots of people have and lots of people on this <laughs> conference will have and, and, and but, but we see that. God's faithfulness to them we see how God is drawing that together to tell a story that goes to the cross but then goes to the resurrection mm. and our stories will be included in that on the uh, but we yeah we won't see it we may not I don't think you can say this happens that this could happen so that I could meet this person we often can't do that yeah um but we trust that God is sovereign and working good yeah, I'm just looking at your trainers and thinking that Nike tick. My husband uses that and he says, actually, often the pattern of the way that God works is, like you say, the Joseph story down, down, down yep. into the pit and the grave and then raised to be the highest in the land. And we see that at the cross, Jesus goes down to the cross and yet is resurrected. And I think that is the pattern really of every believer that he brings us into the depths and yet he is going to raise us to life eternally with Christ. And I love the fact that you can think that whatever, wherever you are on that journey, the, you know the, where it if, ends. You know where it ends. You know where and it that's ends. the confidence <laughs> that we can have. I, I'm really loving, I, I hope we've got time for this question. We, um, I, I think it's a very practical one. Can you help us with our language? Uh, we so often say, oh, God was good to me today, meaning the sun shone or the kids behaved really well, or God's been really kind to me because I had a good night's sleep. Is it okay to say that? Do we need to work out how to talk about God being good in a different way? It's a great question. It is a great question. And, and I think having my own experience of kind of the prosperity end of the, of, the, um, yeah, of the conversation, there is a right reluctance to not say, yeah, to not only say that God is good when he's doing the things that we deem good. Yeah. Um, but I think I want to say a few things. It is good for us to thank God for his gifts. Um, if God helps you to get the children to bed on time, it's a good thing to say that, that, that that's a good thing. Yep. Because if you know it's a good thing from God, then you'll thank him for it. And I think we do well to, to note his goodness to us because that, I think that does encourage thankfulness. Because yep. if you know that it's his goodness, you would thank him for it. God, thank you for helping me get the kids to bed on yep. time. Um, yeah, thank you for that, helping me in that job. Thank you for helping me in that talk. <laughs> thank you for um, helping me to get the bus on time. Yep. And if thank you, you for training me in perseverance when I didn't sleep well and when the kids didn't go to bed this, last night, but, which was my journey. But that is the, corris <laughs> that is the correspondence, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing if a fearfulness about the prosperity gospel means that we don't thank God for the things that he is doing to us that, is, that are good. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, even when, as you said, even when the kids don't go to bed and you do miss a bus and the talk is awful and you... Um, 
even in that, it's, it's also good for us to know that God is still being good. He's working on those things that we, we wouldn't know and we don't yeah. realise and we can't draw together. But in that moment, Christ has still died and raised on your behalf, so he is still being good. Um, he's still giving you the gift of faith to trust in the gospel. He is still being good. Um, yeah, so when we, when we see things in life that, that are gifts to us from God, um, it's not for us to pretend that they're not real. We don't, we don't ignore them. Yep. No, acknowledge them. Every good thing you have is a gift from God. The breath you breathe is a gift from God. Acknowledge that it's a gift from him and thank him for it. But even when there looks like there's not many things to thank him for, A, there probably is. Yeah. But B, you will, the, cross is, the cross is still true. <laughs> even if nothing else, you can thank him for that because that's, that's the most significant thing you'll ever have to thank God for. That's the thing that secures your eternity. Yeah. yeah. And I think we often equate happiness with goodness that because it made me happy therefore it was good i've heard somebody once say marriage is not for our happiness but our holiness and i think we could probably apply that to a lot of situations actually we want god's goodness to mean i'm happy but actually it means i'm growing in holiness in christ like yeah and hopefully like um god is doing the good to us of, of of the gifts that he gives us amen and it's good for us to acknowledge him in that and thank him for that but he is also working a better goodness in us the goodness of godliness which is a good thing the goodness of eternal life, the goodness of a relationship with God as your father. And so if, if in our hearts we have become people who, who thank God for the things and not, and not, that he's giving to us and not the things that he's doing in us, that probably is a moment to pause and just reflect on your heart and, and really challenge that. Um, we want to thank him for all of it. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. Um, we did a, a, a piece in church on thankfulness for things in 2020. And a couple of people emailed in to say, I cannot think of anything to thank God for in 2020. And we had even a couple of our Bible study leaders say that. And yet then we got other emails from like a disabled person who said, thank you, God, that we have, you've kept me through 2020 and I haven't fallen away. And then there's a girl who lost her best friend and her dad. And she gave this most moving account of thank you, God, for my church family who've kept me going. And you think it's interesting, isn't it, that the people whose lives are the hardest often are the ones who can see what God is doing. And sometimes when it's really easy, we just, we can't see what God is doing. And I know it's not been easy for anybody, but I love the way you've challenged us to be thankful and to count God's blessings Mm. to us. So thank you so much, Gabby, for your time. Thank you for your helpful talks. They were so good. Thank you for exploring that further with us.